Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Today, we are recording on-site in the Financial District of Manhattan, New York, and I have three guests today. One is way out in Brooklyn and joining us by phone. And then while keeping with the gatherings must be 10 persons or less guideline, two of my guests are right here in the studio with me. It is Juneteenth, Friday, June 19th, 2020. It is a day that celebrates freedom. But when you look back over the last 155 years, more than a century and a half, freedom has been defined in many different ways. And it is only now, 20 years into a new millennium, that a global pandemic, COVID-19, and social unrest in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, that we are making progress toward a world where we all treat each other with kindness as the brothers and sisters we are. After all, we are all human beings. And we will accomplish so much more when we see how we are alike and celebrate how we are different. And that is why today we have three special guests that represent the diversity of New York City and are part of the fabric of generations of legacy real estate in the neighborhoods of Chinatown and Soho in Manhattan and East Flatbush in Brooklyn. So without further ado, I'm your host, Bill Widener, and I'm very excited to welcome this episode's guests, Joanna Wong, Jan Lee, and Sharon Redhead to Realty Speak, to share with us the inside story of what it means to be an apartment property owner of real estate that has been in the family for generations and the challenges and joys they and their families have experienced over the decades past in this very complicated and regulated environment called the city of New York. Joe, Jan, and Sharon, thank you for joining me and the Realty Speak audience. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here, Bill. Thank you. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show to share my story. Please share a little history with us. Joe? So it all started when each of my grandparents came to America in 1960s. My father's side came from China. My, my grandfather actually came from Cuba. And on my mom's side, they came from Hong Kong. My parents were teenagers when they, when they got here. They didn't know any English. And, you know, they were just dropped down <laughs> and had to start going to school and start trying to assimilate into a, a totally foreign setting. Um, they, they met here, actually, and they got married. They had children. And they worked basically every day they've been here ever since they were teenagers. My mom worked at Alexander's, the old department store. My dad worked a bunch of random blue collar jobs. He was like a tofu maker at one point. He drove a cab at one point. He eventually settled into construction and he did plumbing for most of his life. But at some point when they were young, they had the choice of either buying a house for their family in Brooklyn or buying a pre-war tenement building at the perimeter of Chinatown. You know, my mom will always talk about how at that time, no Chinese people were buying at that time. It was really dangerous. It was really risky for her as a Chinese woman to buy outside of Chinatown. But they decided to take everything they had and make that investment in that building instead of buying a home for their own family. What year was that? 1978. Wow. Yeah, the city was completely different in the 70s. Yeah, my, my mom always tells stories how it was dangerous. People would get beat up. If you weren't from that neighborhood, you know, you would get jumped. It was a dangerous time, but they decided to to make that choice anyway. So how big was the building? The building is seven-story walk-up. Wow. And it's 20 units. Yeah, they're tiny apartments. So they lived there and then they rented out the rest of the apartments. No, they lived in a in another tiny apartment closer to two bridges, close to the to the river, close to the I guess FDR. Over by the Manhattan Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, by the water. Yeah. Before the water was cool. So they lived in an apartment that they rented. Correct. And then they bought this as an investment. Correct. Instead of instead of buying a home in what would really be considered the suburbs back then, Brooklyn. Correct. Exactly. That, which was probably like 
the dream at that time, you know, to, to have a, your own house in the suburbs of Brooklyn. It's a tremendous um, sacrifice that they made because instead of having more space for the family, they took everything they had and they put it into this building so that they could create a future for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That was the, the dream. Yeah. That was the goal. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I want to get back to talking to you more about that because that's really quite uh, extraordinary. Jan, do you want to give us a little history of your legacy? My grandfather actually immigrated from China before 1900, actually. And at some point, he had become a bookkeeper for a local dry goods store in Chinatown. As a bookkeeper and as, a, as someone who worked, your qualification was considered merchant, and therefore you could travel freely, even though there was a Chinese Exclusion Act at the time. Because of this act, there was very, very limited resources available to Chinese. Borrowing, many people would not loan someone money if you were Chinese. What I was told was uh, Chinatown, of course, was very small. Um, my dad was born in 1921 in the building that I live in. And poor families at the time, you, were, you didn't go to the hospital. You would have a midwife who would come to deliver the baby, and that was my dad. At, at some point, my grandfather was able to travel back and forth to China, so he had some family Obviously, marries in China, but he has some family in China, and he brings those over uh, over decades, really. But he was very pioneering at the time because a lot of Chinese at the time that he was purchasing were really interested in being in America just to make money to send home. And he had a very different view. He found his roots here, had every intention of not going back to China, and he would do whatever he could to really raise his family here and, and have a future in America. And that started with owning real estate. Tell me a little bit about that building and when he got it and what, what happened around that. I went to the municipal archives and I found out it was formerly owned by a Jewish family, one of which was an architect. And at the time, the Jewish families, Irish and Italians, they were in, in a point of transition around 1924 when he purchased it. My family was the only Chinese family near Mott Street at the time. As my dad said, who lived through the Depression... Everyone was poor at the time, but we just didn't know it because you, you were among Italian and Irish and Jewish kids and everybody had uh, sort of a camaraderie because nobody had anything, really. You didn't have two nickels to rub together. So I think that that kind of, a, uh, of an upbringing, although very different than people who had money, wasn't necessarily a horrific existence. You, you may do with what you had, is, is the way my dad explained it. Sharon, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. You enjoying all this? <laughs> it's a nice reminder of how New York is how it is. It's made up of immigrants from all over the world with the same story, but different nuances. I tell you, I'm fascinated. I really am. And I'm looking forward to hearing your story. So Sharon, <laughs> give us a little history. My parents came to New York from the Caribbean in 1971. They purchased their first property the sixth unit. Well, take a step back. When we came here from the Caribbean, we looked at my grandmother in Crown Heights, and my parents decided to get their own, and they purchased a six-unit building in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. My mom is a nurse, so my mom worked nights. My father had a regular nine-to-five. He worked at the Altman and Company, which was a department store. So my mom would take care of me during the day, and my father would come home and watch me in the evenings. We lived across the street from a vacant building that was inhabited by squatters. And my father took an interest in kind of what he said was saving the community because it was becoming more and more deteriorated. So he went to the city and was able to purchase it for, I guess, to pay the, the amount of the tax lien that was owed on it. And he, he tried to renovate the building. It was so bad that all the wiring and the plumbing was removed because people were selling it for money. So he had a hard time securing a loan because of who he is. He was a young black man with no experience in the business. So he had a hard time securing funding. Fortunately, he had friends and family who believed in him and believed in his dream. And everybody pitched in to make the dream a reality. Um, my father would come home from work. And he would have something to eat and run straight across the street and work in the building. We were fortunate in that the few vendors in the neighborhood that my father used worked on credit and allowed my father to complete the building two years later. 
some of these vendors we still have relationships with 40 years later. So wow, that's been a, a godsend to us. People you can really trust at a very yeah. high level. And, <laughs> they and trust you, us, um, and, yeah. and I'm working, my father worked with the parents, I'm now working with the kids. So it's second generation for, for both families that are working together. So it just shows how New York City is a city of immigrants and how the immigrants are who pretty much um, save the city. But your father's friends, your father's friends at the time, they, they believed in him and they trusted him and they could see the passion that he had for wanting to rehabilitate this building. And they helped him, you know, put up the money to do it He is he, because he wasn't able he wasn't able to get a loan from a regular lending institution. Exactly. They were all pretty much in the same business, so they knew the challenges he was facing. So everyone gave him a couple dollars. Eventually, he got a small loan, but it wasn't enough to do the complete job. So right. he had to do everything piecemeal. I had an uncle who came from overseas who spent six months working with my dad for free to help him get the building you know, up and running. That's how we started. To this day, it's 40-something years later, and my dad, you know, I hate to, to reveal his age, He's still in the building doing plumbing. I spoke to him a little while ago. He was under someone's sink doing the plumbing. You know, it helped keep him going, but it also helped us to maintain the business because I couldn't afford to pay for labor at the rates that it's going now. And that that pretty much helped us to survive these years with these low rents because labor was free. Thank you very much for the history that you shared with the Realty Speak listeners. And what I'm finding really, really interesting and fascinating about all of this, speaking to the three of you and listening to the history and the legacy, is that this is a different kind of reason for real estate investing. When people think about real estate investors, they think about these institutions that own millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars worth of real estate. I'm so psyched that we're doing this today because I think it's really giving people an understanding of what it is to own real estate as a family over a really, really long period of time and what it is that you have to go through. And then, of course, what complicates it is that we do live in a highly regulated environment, a very complicated environment with all the agencies that one must navigate to own real estate in one of the five boroughs of the city of New York. I think it really helps people understand and maybe have a different perspective of what you are contributing in terms of housing to people that really need a place to live. I want to talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts of what it is that you deal with owning this real estate, specific challenges that you have dealt with that you would prefer go a different way. And they don't. They don't go a different way. It seems like every other week, there's a new law, new rule that we need to comply with. It feels like for every unfortunate incident there is, the solution is always, okay, we're going to make the property owner do this now. One example that comes to mind is there was a fire They left a pizza box on top of the stove and then it ended up lighting on fire. The solution to that was, okay, now every single property owner has to send out a rider offering stove knob covers to the tenants. They're under a certain age. Tenants can still request it even if they want it. We've done that. We've given the stove knob covers. A lot of people end up taking it off because it's so burdensome. And tenants often come to us and they're like, what is all this paper? What is all, what are all these different things you're asking me to do? You know, and we, we just say, we have to offer it. We have to, you know, this is your, your option. But it just becomes so onerous. If you have a big team, maybe you can manage all these different rules. But when you're a small property owner, and you have so many different rules that you have to follow, it's really, it's almost impossible to keep on top of, of everything. You have to be the lawyer, the GC, you're the janitor, your HR, your operations, you're everything. You wear so many different hats. My father always says, without you guys, his children, he has no clue how he would be able to, to handle everything today. But even for someone, you know, like me, it gets overwhelming, even even for me. It's interesting, Joanna, that one of the roles that we play that a lot of people don't understand is that we are the city's social workers. 
everyone that I've spoken to who's a small property owner has a story of tragedy, has a story of uh, heartbreak. And oftentimes, tenants, they'll share that sometimes with us before they share it with family members. Um, uh, and, and that speaks to the role of our importance uh, in New York City. Don't forget that if the small property owner wasn't there as the social worker, that is a social worker that the city would have to provide. And I can tell you firsthand, they do a horrible job of it. Uh, try to get somebody to to uh, care for your loved one remotely, and it's a very difficult thing to do if you're relying on the city's own network that they're supposed to be doing. So oftentimes, we're the ones who have to help someone, sometimes with funeral arrangements. We've all been doing this lately, is health checks. A lot of us are doing our own health checks to make sure uh, at the height of the COVID experience, uh, we were making weekly health checks would make sure that all of our tenants are accounted for and healthy because their family members couldn't travel to see them. We wear a lot of different hats, but uh, we have a very important social responsibility. And you've been doing it for decades. Well, that's the thing, Bill. You know, my family's going on the 96th year of ownership of two tenements uh, in Chinatown. All the investment that we've made, all of the physical investments uh, that we've made into that property were without assistance from the city of New York. In fact, the city will not give you assistance unless you have to jump through all of these hurdles of which most of us will never be able to take advantage of because the red tape is so suffocating that I would say a very high percentage of us would never be able to do it. And so just as we're reaching for many of us, the point of uh, our housing stock as old as it is, we're ready to do major repairs. They took away the ability for us to compensate for that over time. And that was with the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. And really to speak, listeners, I know that you're familiar with that if you've listened to the episodes that I've done on that in the past. And what Jan is talking about is there was something called Major Capital Improvements, MCIs, and IAIs, Individual Apartment Improvements, that enable someone who owned rent-stabilized housing stock. And, and just to reiterate what that is. So there were two forms of apartments in the city of New York. There were free market apartments, and there are stabilized apartments. And there's about a million under rent regulation, which are either stabilized or rent-controlled. The rent-controlled represents a much smaller percentage of it. And in 2019, exactly a year ago, pretty much, it was the 14th of June, the state legislature passed a new law called the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, and that actually greatly reduced. It didn't take it away completely, but it might as well have because really the, the what is allowable now is is so close to zero that it doesn't make sense to do it. So it really took away the ability for an owner to improve the building either with major capital improvements in the building or individual improvements in the apartment, and then actually get an allowance to raise the rent on the rent-stabilized apartment. They also got a bonus when there was a tenant that vacated, called the vacancy bonus, close to 20%. If the tenant was there more than a certain amount of years, I believe it was seven, they received a longevity bonus. And then it got to a point where when the rent did get to a certain level, you could deregulate the apartment and make it free market and and actually have a reward in the terms of revenue and income for all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into this building over the decades. None of that exists anymore. Even rent stabilization aside, there's still a huge risk. Just because you renovate and then rent it to the free market doesn't mean you'll make money. Even if you have a Margaret apartment that's been occupied for a long time and you do choose to renovate it, like you said, there's so many hurdles to get over just to be able to renovate it in terms of the complicated system of the Department of Buildings to do a renovation in a building that you may not actually benefit from that. And, and also, Sharon had mentioned in, in the case of her building that, uh, you know, her father had used favored, favorite vendors of hers. And the same is true for me. You know, I use a lot of the guys in, in Chinatown who are vendors to the uh, housing industry. All of those vendors have seen an enormous downturn because a million apartments are now not renovating with the same vigor that they used to. In fact, many people may not renovate uh, at all for several years until they're able to build up some, some money. 
So we're taking out not just apartments off of the available apartments in the city. We're actually causing more and more blue-collar workers, middle-class people. We're taking jobs away because this law has consequences that go way beyond just hurting the landlord. So it's choking the money flow. And it's choking the money flow because it was supposed to preserve affordable housing, but a lot of property owners, uh, once the apartment becomes vacant, they can't renovate it because it doesn't make sense economically. So that actually removes that apartment from the housing stock. We have two different buckets here. One bucket is individual property owners, whether they be families that own a few buildings or they be large institutions that own hundreds of millions of dollars worth of buildings, and then everyone in between, they really should be able to uh, use the marketplace and have a business, which is the apartment real estate business. And in some cases, it might be a mixed-use building where you have retail on the first floor. And then the other bucket is affordable housing. And we and we do have affordable housing programs in the city of New York. Developers, uh, both public and private partnerships, get together and there are incentives for them to build affordable housing. But uh, when they do it, they have underwritten that entire transaction based on specific guidelines and rules and incentives so that when it's all said and done, they are providing affordable housing and they're still able to run the building and operate the building at a profit. With a private property owner, the rules have changed so many times over the years that every time you think you have a business plan, you have to take that business plan and put it through the shredder because now it's a whole new set of rules and regulations. And the, of course, the most recent one is the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. It's frustrating because they keep changing the laws. But in addition to that, they change the rules on you after you've already done something based off of the prior rules. So for example, preferential rents. If you have a rent stabilized apartment, the lease could have a rent that was below the legal regulated rent. And at the end of that lease, you could renew that lease at any rent below the legal regulated rent. With 2019 HSTPA, your preferential rent is now capped at this RGB increases. Before where you have a good relationship with the tenant, maybe the tenant is going through a hard time and you're like, okay, I will renew your lease at a lower level, lower than maybe what you would have normally rented for, knowing that this was temporary, knowing that this was only for a year or maybe even two years. But then you might have this lease in effect as of you know June 2019. And then when the new laws pass, now you're capped at that preferential rent until the tenant moves out, which could be never. And if there's a succession, it really could be like, I could be dead by the time that happens. And so potentially in perpetuity, not only do they keep changing the rules, but they change the rules on you after you've already done something based off of the prior rule. They didn't even let you finish out that lease based off of the prior rule. To expand on what Joe just said is the city keeps moving the goalposts. They set a goal for us to reach. We get there. And just as when we get there, they move it again with another law. And each time they pass a law, they don't realize they're making the relationship between property owner and tenant more and more contentious because there's more and more for us to do. And it becomes financially burdensome for us to keep up with every changing law. With the laws that were passed last year, with regards to vacant apartments. As I said, my parents built renovations in the 1980s. It's 40-something years later. I have tenants who've been there from day one. So tenants who've been in the building for 40 years, when they leave, however they leave, I have to renovate these apartments, and I can't afford to renovate, spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 renovating an apartment and rent it for $89 more than what they're currently paying. That'll kill me financially. It's unfair for us to, as Joanna said, put all the work in, do what we're supposed to do based on what is currently said. And as soon as we get there, they move the goalposts again. This is a constant thing that we've been facing. Every time we do something, there's another law and another requirement on a landlord. 
it's definitely draining us financially, emotionally. As Jan said, also, we're social workers. It's been 40-something years my parents have watched me grow up. I'm not watching their kids grow up. We have personal relationships with them. If they have whatever life experiences that happen, death, loss of job, they come to us, they want a break. If we can do it, we, we give them a break. But right now we're trapped in that. If we give them a break on their rent, if we put it in the lease, that becomes their permanent rent. So I have to weigh, do I give them a break or do I protect myself? And that shouldn't where we should be. The city should be encouraging us to have good relationships with our tenants. And that's where we were before. But every time they change the goalposts, they are deteriorating that relationship. One of the things, Bill, I, I think that we have to acknowledge, and, and I think now's the perfect time to acknowledge this, is that you know we've all expressed hardship. The hardships that we've had as families trying to get loans and trying to work with the city, we are very vulnerable. We've always been vulnerable owners. The people who are insulated from that vulnerability are the ones who have big cash flows, who own many, many buildings in their portfolios. The really huge corporate owners can insulate themselves to some degree. What we notice is that in speaking with more and more owners who are like us, we're going to lose ownership who are people of color in communities of color. And I find that to be not only reprehensible by this administration to not acknowledge that, that we are actually holding the fabric of the city together. As Sharon has said, you know, we're, we're at the breaking point, all of us. And if we start to lose ownership of New York, who are the owners who look like the communities that we have helped to build, we're going to have a city that's unaffordable. The goals that they had strived to do, which is to preserve affordable housing, is not going to be there because actually we're holding apartments that have far lower rents than any of those that you mentioned previously. Because developers, they're building those homes recently, the expenses, the union wages, the uh, prevailing costs that they have to meet to build buildings are factored into what is considered an affordable rent. I can guarantee you the three people on this call have rents in our buildings that are far lower than what the city is considered affordable housing that they give great deals to in this public-private partnership. And in that public-private partnership, there are incentives for the developers in terms of big tax abatements. You're not getting any tax abatement to provide affordable housing, are you? 96 years, we've never received anything from the city of New York that recognizes my family as being a very important part of the city of New York in maintaining ethnic communities, maintaining ethnic businesses, maintaining the social fabric of my community. Now you multiply that into many, many other communities of color, and the city is turning a blind eye to that, even with the protests that are going on today. The city is making believe that we don't have a part of that. And, and we're here to tell you that we are actually a very, very integral part of the stability of these neighborhoods. And without us, it literally becomes destabilized. And I can tell you that because within my buildings, we, are, we have three nonprofit representatives who are tenants who have devoted their time back into their community. And they don't have a lot of money, but they have a lot of heart. And if they fall on hard times, a corporate owner, they're not going to want to hear your sob story. They're concerned with the bottom line. What you're hearing expressed now is that we've always cared. And when that caring within these communities disappears, which is what you have when you have corporate ownership, they care about their investors. That's the danger that we're in. We're really at a precipice. And to express this at this time is really, really important. Something that you've said before, Jan, which I think is so true, is that small property owners, they are much more likely to give personal sacrifice to their tenants and to their buildings. And we've had this conversation before. And after that conversation, recently, a New York Times article came out where they talked about something called, quote, naturally affordable rents. So th those are rents that are below market without subsidies. And it talks about how small property owners are the ones that give these naturally affordable rents. And they talk about how this is so much more valuable than Section 8, than NYCHA, because to get the benefit of Section 8 or NYCHA, the tenants have to jump through hoops and there's like a long line and, you know, you don't know if you're going to get it. Whereas this is just, you're able to negotiate that lease and, and we're more willing to give it. Small property owners, we are the ones that tend to provide 
more of the affordable housing, not only because our properties tend to be in the areas, probably with lower income levels, but also as small property owners, we tend to be the ones more willing to give a break to someone because we have that relationship because we understand, that, you know, this is a tough time and, and all that will be gone once it's all private equity firms and real estate funds. You were talking about your occupants and these are families. How many families do you provide housing for, Jan? Uh, we provide housing for over 20 families. Joe? Over 50 families. Sharon? We provide housing for 100 families. Wow. Each one of them we know personally. How many do you know personally? Each one of the 100 families we know personally. That's what I thought you said. That's why I clarified it. You know them personally. Yeah. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And as you were listening to this episode, we, and when I say we, that's the human race, have all just shared a very similar experience a pandemic. And while there were differences in how each of us navigated day to day and how each of us personally experienced this time of times, there is one very important common understanding in which we can all agree and for which I dedicate this episode. We are better together when we express kindness and love than when we stand apart in hate. Yes, there is still work to do. So stay safe, stay well, and somehow, some way, we will emerge together. Now back to the show. Bill, this is not unusual. What you're hearing about knowing tenants on a personal level, we talk about this often among ourselves, our property owners. We heard a story recently of one of our property owners uh, got a call from someone from out of state and said, could you please check in on my mother because I can't travel right now. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that she's okay. That's really common, particularly right now. And I think that in an unfair way, the city has set it up where families will oftentimes rely on small property owners as a social worker for their own family before they'll engage with the city. And so we don't have training in that. We have training, which is life experience. But the city has put it on the shoulders of small property owners to take on responsibilities that extend way more than just receiving a rent check in the mail. So I, I think that, that that needs to be examined and it really should, if you're going to put us in that position, we should be compensated for that. And when you tell that story, the word that comes to mind, the one word that comes to mind from me is trust. That's absolutely right. There's a lot of trust. But that's probably one of the most important things that people can share with each other is trust. Because when trust breaks down, then everything else follows along with it. Uh, what about what about the real estate taxes? I know that's been an issue. Uh, and, and just so listeners, just so you know, the people that are talking today are very, very involved in a coalition of small property owners that interact with state assembly people, state senators. City council people with the New York City Council. We've been on Zoom calls together, you know, talking to these people. There's been 50, 60, 70, 80 participants that are property owners, and they've actually moved the needle a little bit, but there's still so much need for relief on the property owner side. All of us, Sharon, Jan, Joe, and I, we we empathize with uh, tenants that some of them living in deep poverty need uh, some kind of assistance, uh, especially during a, a global pandemic when people have lost their jobs and unemployment is an all-time high for a long time. And we, we understand that. But the, the most recent challenge was something called the Rent Guidelines Board, which we have here in the city. And every year in June... Uh, after they've done a study that they publish sometime in April, uh, there is a board of nine members. Uh, three of them are public members. Three of them are tenant representative members, and three of them are property owner representatives. And they have a public hearing. It's usually done at City Hall, but of course, this year it was not. It was done virtually on Zoom. And there were two four-hour sessions, which occurred last Wednesday and last Thursday night a week ago. They were four hours each, and they heard testimony from tenants. They heard testimony from property owners. You had the ability to upload audio, video testimony. You could write something and upload that. There was a lot of input, 
And we heard a lot of people that are in dire straits talk about their situation and how they really didn't want to see a rent increase. And so what the Rent Guideline Board does is it decides how much a rent-stabilized apartment can receive in a rent increase for a one-year lease and a two-year lease for all leases that start October 1st of that year. So in this case, any lease that starts October 1st of 2020, if it's a one-year lease, it can go up X percent. And if it's a two-year lease, it can go up X percent. And what what happened was, is if it's a one-year lease, it's 0%. And if it's a two-year lease, it's 0% the first year and 1% the second year. What percent did your taxes go up between last year and this year, Jan? It's in double digits. So over 10%. Oh, yeah. Definitely over 10%. And uh, Joe? Last year, it was 12%. And that's actually the lowest increase we experienced in the last six years. On average, in the last six years, it was 18%. And Sharon? Mine went up 12% last year. 12% last year. And that's just the taxes, right? There, There are other expenses in running a building, aren't there? Besides taxes? Yeah, of course. Like, it, uh, like water, water and electric and gas and oil and insurance. repairs and maintenance and capital improvements. Um, and, and the list goes on and on, right? So, so I guess my question is to whoever it is that's listening that has some kind of input here and can maybe create change. And that for all of you that are just listening because you're listening and you can't believe what you're hearing, right? The question is how does a property owner continue to operate a building where just the taxes alone are going up 10, 12, 15 times what they're allowed to raise the rent? And in this case, it doesn't matter because it's 0% for a one-year lease. You know, it's important to note, Bill, that that the Rent Guidelines Board itself has done its own analysis and understood all of those raises that you just talked about and have actually acknowledged them. But based on local politics, they've decided to throw all of that data out the window and actually enact a zero percent increase. That's completely motivated by politics and not by data. So one has to question, at what time do you start throwing away data and just making decisions purely on what the mayor says that day. Because let's not forget that when the mayor came into office, he promised everyone that he was going to thoroughly examine the crazy system of real estate taxation in New York City. And to this day, he's failed to do that. You know, he's he's made grand statements about how he's going to take a look into the Department of Finance and try to untangle this arbitrary assessment process that they have. But to this day, even he doesn't want to dive into it. The larger real estate firms, you know, no matter if you have a one unit or a thousand units, we probably face a lot of the same challenges. But if you are larger with a larger team and more reserves, you have more resources to help you better navigate. Glad you brought that up because I don't want to give the impression that large property owners don't have any problems. They have the same problems. They have the exact same problems, or it's just on a bigger scale. But they do have economies of scale. They do have more units. They probably do have more reserves, and so they're able to navigate it a little bit better. Before, I was talking about how they changed the rules on you, like when you're already in. By them capping the the preferential rents at whatever level it was as of June 14, 2019, what ended up happening is that the owners who did not give preferential rents and constantly every year maxed it out, they are the ones that ended up being okay because their rents are at the legal regulated rent. It's the owners who were willing to give that concession and maybe over several years repeatedly, those were the, the ones that essentially got penalized. And for me, like personally, I feel like that was like a lesson learned. Now it's, you know, every time someone asks for a concession, you really have to think twice because you're like, okay, is this going to somehow come back and bite me, you know, in the behind? And, and now with COVID, there are situations where some tenants are asking for relief. You know, they're like, I, I want to stay, but can I get a break? And I'm reluctant to do so because of preferential rents. What you're saying is that if you gave them a break, then in essence, you would be setting a preferential rent. And then when their lease renewed, 
you wouldn't be able to go back to the original rent. Correct. You're you're stuck there. And you, I mean, you could say to them, "I'm going back to the original rent," but in effect, you'd be violating the law. Correct. So you really can't. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Right. So so you're 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 disincentivized from actually helping somebody that you truly want to help. Correct. The old adage. No good deed goes good unpunished. Deed goes unpunished, right? You know, the, the you know, <laughs> Sharon and I, motto. <laughs> Sharon and I say that often. But um, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And we have to understand. As I go back to what we were saying about how an enormous number of small property owners purchased buildings that they could afford in neighborhoods where other developers did not want to go. Sharon gave a perfect example. There was a building that was completely abandoned. All of that building it back up. People like us have given people preferential rent years ago when times were bad. Chinatown went through a period when it was full of gangs and people were were not coming down to Chinatown. And so those periods where my parents were around, they may have given someone a preferential rent just to make sure that they had a home, make sure that they were able to come into a safe housing at the time. And now that we're having the goalpost moved, as Sharon said, we're stuck with something that we that is irreparable. We can never go back. So I think that there should be some recognition of that. And as Joe said, they could have waited until those leases were finished before they changed the rules on us. There's also, you know, two standards. The city of New York is actually a landlord. They do a horrible job of it. We talked about the fact that there are landlords throughout the city who may have taken an apartment and not rented it anymore because they can't get their IAI or they can't get the MCI. Well, you know, the city of New York does that all the time. The city of New York looks at a NYCHA apartment sometimes and says, this one's too far gone. Put a padlock on it. No one ever sees it. And that is not talked about. But you know who owns more properties? The city of New York has has many, 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 many apartments. And they, as we know, they're in something like a $30 billion deficit in terms of repairing NYCHA. So the city has two standards, one for us, which are small property owners, and for themselves, they turn a blind eye to everything that every every ill of, of society, they turn a blind eye to their contribution to it. For the listeners, NYCHA stands for New York City Housing Authority, and it was founded in 1934, and it's public housing. And if you Google it and look for articles on it, you can read all about it. It's not a fun place to live because of the way it's not maintained over the years. And actually, there's been uh, talk, and, and I believe there even has been executed some partnerships where private Companies are taking over some of the NYCHA buildings. They have to agree to certain terms so that they can rehabilitate them and make them better. And, you know, we're talking about affordable housing, right? I mean, that that's pretty much what we've been talking about the whole time is affordable housing. And there are so many different ways that it can be delivered. And if it's delivered properly, then everybody benefits. The property owner, the public-private partnerships that developed it, the people that invested in it, the tenants that live there, uh, everyone really, really benefits. And I have this idea, and uh, it's probably a little idealistic, and you would really have to think about how it would work. But if the city identified every underutilized non-residential site that they own, and they are the biggest owner of real estate in New York City, if not, you know, in the top 10. I'm not sure exactly where they stand, but they're definitely in the top 10. If they identified every non-residential site, whether it be a vacant site or an underutilized building somewhere, and then they created a program where highly publicly subsidized affordable housing development occurred there, and it would be a nice place to live. And if it's in a specific community that's, you know, an enclave of culture, right, you know, that's great because now that new site with these new apartments that would be 100% affordable, and by the way, affordable housing rents are based on AMI, depending on what percentage of AMI your income is and how big your family is, that's how much you pay rent. So they do a calculation. It's kind of complicated, but it all works out. So now- You have this new housing, and the first people that get to be chosen to live in this new housing are the people that are currently living in private owners' rent-stabilized apartments and rent-controlled apartments. So what you begin to do is you begin to absorb the regulated apartments out of private owners' buildings into newly built, beautiful, in the same neighborhood affordable housing. And now 
It's subsidized affordable housing, publicly subsidized. That's the way it's supposed to be. And now the private property owner has a vacant apartment that they can now renovate and bring to market rate. And it's going to take years, but after five or 10 or 15 years, you won't have any more rent-regulated apartments in the city of New York, but you'll have a heck of a lot of affordable housing for the people in the city of New York who love to live here that they'll be able to afford and live and work here like they do today. And probably, most likely, in the same neighborhood where they started in the first place. I think it's important to understand that for people who don't either live in a rent-stabilized unit or people who are not familiar with New York City's rent-stabilized units, it's very common to have rents that are one-tenth of the prevailing market rate for that area. I would posit one scenario before your step, Bill, and that is to acknowledge the city is not able to provide over 900,000 rent-stabilized units today. They would not be able to provide them in such density because of the new uh, zoning and also because of the new building codes. They would not be able to replicate our housing. With that in mind, it's way less expensive to give us tax breaks, to give us the tools that we need to maintain 100-year-old buildings, and to give us the tools to make people safe, to make our homes safe. We live in some of these buildings. So it's way less expensive than actually building new housing. So I think that your your plan is ambitious, but there's an in-between step, which is to preserve what is extant, to preserve what's here, to give us the tools so that we could fix the roof and that we could make sure that the building is safe, understanding that the city of New York will never be able to provide as much affordable housing in the neighborhoods that need it right now. Well, unless they change the zoning, right? They'd have to change the zoning. I mean, if you're in an area where the building height can only be six stories, you're going to have to change the zoning so it can be 15 or 20 or 30 stories. Right. And if you've ever gone to a community board hearing, you just try changing the zoning in any community board hearing and, and you'll see what you're up against. Like I said, it's a little idealistic. We're looking at an, an enormous amount of housing right now that is aging, and we want to take care of it. There's a, there's a misconception that all of us um, want to just you know, get, squeeze as much money out of our real estate and, and leave. And you know, as, as an owner of 96 years in the same neighborhood, we are very much invested in our community, as is Joe and as is Sharon. Going back to what she was saying, Bill, in my particular neighborhood, there has been zoning changes and there's a lot of development. But the problem is these buildings are empty because of what the city considers affordable. It's affordable maybe in another neighborhood, but not the neighborhood of East Development. Once again, it goes back to my point about their numbers being more than what I can provide or similar owners can provide in terms of affordable housing. So what you're saying is that newly built affordable housing is remaining vacant because the rents that were set as quote unquote affordable are too high for the people living in the community. Exactly. Even though it's described as affordable. Even though the city describes it as affordable. But if they give the property owners the chance, as Jan said, to rehabilitate and to continue to maintain our properties and units that become vacant, we do a better job than they can. For me, the most frustrating part is that you hear all these local electeds talk about the need for more affordable housing. They don't seem to really want to build more supply, like Jan was saying before with the community board. Everyone wants more affordable housing, but not in my backyard. No one, no one wants a new building, more apartments in their neighborhood, but everyone wants affordable housing. So where's this affordable housing supposed to come from? Up to this point, we've been talking about the trials and tribulations of owning real estate as a family legacy in the city of New York. And I'm sure there is some feel-good stories, and we'll get to those soon. But I just want to say for anyone listening, if you're in a community that doesn't have rent regulation, really take note to everything that we're talking about. Because if it starts to come to your location, you definitely want to do everything you possibly can to avoid it being enacted so that you're not dealing with what we're dealing with. And we've been dealing with this, you know, since the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And here it is now, you know, 2020. What really has to happen is everyone has to come to the table. All the stakeholders have to come to the table. Policymakers, lawmakers, city council, assembly, senate, even the federal government at some level, right? And the big property owners, the small property owners, the people that live in the community that are renting in these properties have to come to the table 
and they have to say, what is it that we want? What would be reasonable and realistic? Something, an action plan that we could actually execute over a period of years. And this is not going to happen overnight. It could take five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. But if you don't start thinking now what's going to work, then it's never going to change. And if it doesn't change, I think we're going to go in the wrong direction when it comes to real estate and what everyone is trying to accomplish here in the city of New York. You know, anytime you take an economy and you artificially regulate it, and that's what rent control is, it's an artificial regulation of what other cities enjoy as free market. When people come to New York City and they go, my God, the rents are out of this world, they're so expensive, they don't understand that there's an artificial restriction of the number of apartments that are available to be rented. And so when you take 940 plus thousand apartments and you heavily regulate them, then you are actually creating a market where the extant apartments that are newer become much more valuable. Rent control and rent stabilization, a lot of people don't know, was supposed to be temporary. It was kept here because of politics. And it was kept here because it gets uh, judges and it gets politicians elected year after year. But from an economic standpoint and from a real world standpoint and from uh, an immigrant family standpoint, it's not working. It's not working where people can immigrate here anymore because new immigrant families can't afford what's left. And so people selfishly stay in apartments that they don't deserve. Those are not actually vetted anymore. There, there's no regulation to say as you grow your income, you're still living in apartments that are really should be for immigrant families you know, at a lower level so that they could have that chance that you had. But without that regulation, you're tying up a million apartments, of which a certain percentage of them probably should be put back on the market. What you're saying is that there are people living in those apartments that have the means to pay market rate for a market rate apartment, but because the rent's so cheap, it's like winning a lottery. You're never leaving. You're going to stay there. Golden handcuff. Say that again, Sharon? Golden handcuff. Right. It doesn't matter how much the, the income level of the tenant, like in NYCHA or Section 8, where it's all, you know, all based off of how much income you have and rent stabilization, you could be a millionaire, you could be a billionaire. You still have rights to your rent-stabilized apartment. But also, if you have a tenant who doesn't even live there, maybe they have a, a house somewhere else, maybe they're even subletting it, you're better off just leaving them in there. The tenant uses it as their weekend home whenever they decide to come to the city. Why would a property owner spend thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars to bring that unit back to the market? Because there's, it, it's just going to be lost. It, those tens of thousands of dollars, it's just down the drain. Because of the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, the incentive to have a tenant leave a rent-stabilized apartment does not exist. Correct. You're better off if the, if the resident stays and continues to pay rent, regardless of how low it is, because when they leave, the only thing you're going to be left with is a vacant apartment that needs to be renovated, that's going to be rented for pretty much what you were renting it to them for, except for whatever the rent guidelines bought allowed. Further decreasing the housing stock. That was the goal of this act was to keep people in the apartments. But I guess you, you'll emphasize the point by keeping someone who doesn't need it in the apartment. Correct. But you still keep them in the apartment. Right, because it's a revenue stream for us, but that person doesn't particularly need it. But it would be better off if a family in a homeless shelter or wherever could occupy that apartment. It's interesting, too, because uh, when the city is your landlord, you have to be approved year to year. Right. They have to certify or whatever it is every year. That's right. You have to be certified year to year. So the city has a different standard than it imposes on us. That's why they want us to be the social workers. If you have a five family and then all the children left and now you're empty nesters, they'll make you move into a smaller apartment. But with rent stabilization, that's not the case. doesn't matter. It, there's, no, there's no correlation to need rent levels and apartment well, so far, this is, like I said before, fascinating because I'm learning so much about what it is to own legacy real estate, family real estate from decades and generations before. And some of the things that we've been talking about are, you know, difficult conversations to have and hopefully we'll be able to affect some change over a period of time. But in the meantime, you know, you've been doing it for a long time. Your family's been doing it for a long time. And obviously, you're passionate about it. 
Otherwise, you would have given it up a long time ago. What's some of the beautiful things, the feel-good stories that have happened over the years that you'd like to share with us? Sharon? I like when some of my tenants are able to move out by their own or their kids graduate from medical school or law school. It's, it's good to see the, the progress for the next generation. I had an incident today where I showed an apartment to a prospective tenant last Saturday. I usually go by what's on paper, but I always like to meet them in person because you get a feel when you actually meet the person. So I met her last Saturday, pleasant lady. I spoke to her today and said, I'm a little concerned because the rent would be a big increase from what she's currently paying. And I just wanted to make sure that she was comfortable and was able to pay the rent. And she said, yes, you know, she had a side. She has a regular job, but she does a little hustling on the side. So it gave me the impression that she's willing to go the extra mile. So I told her, you know, I was willing to offer her the apartment. Right away, she burst into tears and and couldn't speak. (laughs) She had to call me back about 10 minutes later when she gathered herself. And she said to me, you know, I've been looking for so long, and I'm glad to have the apartment. And when I I did offer her, I told her I was going to knock a couple dollars off the rent because, A, I thought she'd be a good tenant. I liked her as a person. And because I knew she was somewhat struggling, it wouldn't kill me to make the the effort to, to lower the rent. I did it. That's a great story because it shows how, as a legacy property owner, you are able to make that kind of decision and really help someone out. Yeah. And, and that's humanity. can't always do it, but when you can do it, and sometimes it's not a significant amount of money to you, it means more to the tenant than it does to you. And if I can, you know, I'm paying it forward. I'm continuing the legacy that my parents started because when they first started renting, they made it first to keep their initial rents low against the advice of their lenders. Right. And this is, part of, this is part of the problem we're experiencing now because they started off so low, so the rents remain low, too low at the, at the point where, you know, we're, we're struggling, but they did it to help their community, and I, I hope I can continue to do that. That's great. That's great. Jan? I've been really active in the community during this shelter in place. And our council member called and said, we would like to let you know that we have a food pantry that we've set up and you have a network of property owners. Is there any way that you can access some of your network and see if there's a need for groceries to be delivered to homebound people? And I said, yeah, we can we can help with that. And so we started a network of property owners. You know, we run up and down the stairs. I drive my car to the food pantry. I've volunteered at the food pantry. We make sure that our tenants have food. And not all of them are elderly, and not all of them are financially in need. Some of us in Chinatown are very afraid to walk outside during this period because there was a lot of violence uh, against Asian people. came from a lot of misinformation. And so with the number of uh, single women in my building, they really appreciated having somebody they trusted come to their door, bring groceries to them every week, and they could rely on that. And that was actually a help financially as well. In return, I get a thank you. I get appreciation for that. And I, I get a, a bond that is very important to me as a, as a property owner. But those bonds were there before. That's what enables me to approach them, call them, see how they are. They understand that that comes from a, a point of actual concern. And that's something that was evident with my parents when they owned the building. There was many times when the leases were written over the kitchen table in my house with tenants. That understanding that we have with a tenant really is very valuable when you start to expand that into the rest of our community. Because with that level of caring, when times like 9-11, when Chinatown was locked down, we did have food scarcity. We did have food shortages at that time. We had to wait for the government to bring Red Cross in. And again, during Hurricane Sandy, when that happened, we had this other time when we needed to have, we had a six-day blackout, and there were several stores that remained open all the way through the whole blackout. Even though they didn't have power, they were still providing hot coffee, meals that they could cook. And so there's a value to having a connection to your community. As Sharon had just said, we take great pride in our communities, and we have by virtue of us being here a long time, we've oftentimes volunteered in groups and in organizations that then amplify what we're able to do. And when you have a stake in your community, you want to amplify what you can do, not just within your own building, but you feel a sense of ownership of the community. And I think that that's what's important to to understand. If we lose that, we're going to lose a great part of New York as a whole. 
builds a tremendous amount of goodwill between you and your residents and the families you provide housing for. Joe? We do have many good relationships with our tenants. We've had tenants where they have had addiction issues. And then the father came and was like, thank you so much. I don't know what they're talking about when they say New York City, you know, landlords are like horrible, blah, blah. You know, we have a lot of tenants that are like truly appreciative. And those relationships I I value. But the city and the state and the local politicians, they never, ever talk about that. I'm grateful that there's people who are grateful for what we do. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) true. That thank you goes a long way. Yeah. But when it comes on a a more macro level, it's never recognized. And although like you have that one person saying thank you to you, it's like great. But we need that same recognition on a higher level. We need that same recognition by our city and the state and the local politicians, by society. And I think that that recognition, though, Joe, can come in the way of tax abatements for people who have owned property for a long time. Those uh, recognitions could come from understanding that we are actually families ourselves. That recognition could come in the way of legislation that doesn't hurt small property owners. And so I think that that's the way the city can acknowledge our efforts and our legacy in New York. Yeah, I agree. But I guess what they what's actually being put out there is no recognition which is why i'm so frustrated and even when you know they have good intentions they have no consideration as to how burdensome that can be for us they don't care you do it your problem don't care we want it verbalized by the politicians yes a simple acknowledgement we understand we agree with you we know what you're going through acknowledge my existence because I exist. And I think that in fairness, there are elected officials. We're approaching 30 elected officials that we have met with on Zoom calls since March. And that's remarkable. And I think that it's a testament to property owners coming together and making their stories heard. There are elected officials who we've met with multiple times. And as you said earlier, I think we're moving the needle. I think that that's very true. I think that without our presence and without our advocacy for ourselves as small property owners, they probably would be only listening to one side of the story, which is what's been going on for decades, and particularly in this administration. So I think that we are moving the needle. I think that the story is slowly getting out there. I think that it's so timely that you're doing this now, Bill, because I, I think that the recognition of small property owners who are actually also people of color is a very important thing to discuss with this administration who has really, we've heard on calls, people say that uh, New York City is owned by corporate owners only, that don't don't believe that there are mom and pop owners out there. I heard the, the word myth used on the Red Guidelines Board testimony. And I think that that was insulting. It was an implication that you're a mythological family. You don't exist. We stand for the immigrant experience here in America. And to say that it's mythological and that we don't exist, that we've been erased off of the uh, out of the equation, helps to reinforce laws that are designed to only allow the big players to play in this game. And that's that's very unfair. Jan, Joe, Sharon, this has been incredibly enlightening, and I'm sure the Realty Speak audience is thinking right now, wow, what a laser-focused spotlight on New York City real estate that we've never heard before, and we really understand what's going on here now. And I want to thank you all for being so candid and sharing the way you shared. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I'm sure the Realty Speak listeners do as well. Now, as our time together draws to a close, I have one more question for each one of you. And the reason I didn't ask it before is because I didn't want you to have time to think about it. So stream of consciousness answer. Whoever wants to go first, just jump in. All right. And then we'll, we'll get to the other two. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the housing world changed, what do you wish that would be? I would like to see rent control and rent stabilization be done away with so that real middle class and working class people can actually afford to live here. I would like to see the politics removed from housing. It's a private contract between two individuals, and that's how it should remain. We all agree there is a housing issue. I don't know what the answer is. But if if something in the housing world changed... 
It doesn't have to be something you believe will happen, but what do you wish it would be? Total re-examination of how the housing system works. What would be a much better system over rent stabilization would be doing some sort of rent voucher system so that there's no apartments with artificially capped rents under the market. Everything is just the market. And those who actually need the relief, they get the relief through these vouchers. And that would make the entire system more fluid. You won't have empty nesters sitting in a four-bedroom apartment. There'll be more apartments available for that family of five to move out of their one bedroom. I would replace the rent stabilization system with a rent voucher system that was given to those who need the assistance. With regard to that voucher system, Joe, there is uh, Senate Bill 8419 which was sponsored by Brian Kavanaugh. And from what I can see on the assembly site and also some press that I've read, the governor has signed that. But it provides emergency relief in the form of vouchers, something that you just talked about. But there's a limited amount of capital that is actually available to fund that. And that's going to be for the most vulnerable. So not everyone is going to benefit from that. But maybe if it works... It becomes a model for something that could actually work for the broader population of the city of New York. Thank you so much, Joanna, Jan, and Sharon. Phenomenal. And if any of the listeners uh, want more information, please reach out to the Small Property Owners Group of New York. That's spony.org, O-R-G. And you can go to their website, and the contact information is there. We're all members of the Small Property Owners Group in New York. We also uh, advise them and help and volunteer when we can, all four of us. So again, please feel free to uh, reach out to Jan or Joe or Sharon through Spony, and you can reach out to me through my website, which is billwidener.com. And again, thank you all for being here. That was great. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. That was great. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bill, for listening to our stories. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. Just go to the podcast episode page on the website, and there is an opt-in option on the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcast for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. You'll also find Realty Speak on Spotify. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform or email the link to the episode page to your network or share the episode page on LinkedIn. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at billwidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.